Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mike Parks at Intersecting Ideas, just a podcast dedicated to talking about life and culture with friends and seeing how they're living, what they're a specialist in, and just engaging in different ideas within the community. And today, I have a guest who has worked in mental health and knows a lot about forensic mental health. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me all the way from Australia. Absolutely. I'm glad we figured out the time zone difference. <laughs> me too. <laughs> we yeah. got there in the end. The 16-hour difference, but you know, we worked it out. So on today's show, we're just going to talk about kind of, Alex, your background, and then we're going to look at like things like mental health history, what in the world is forensic mental health, and <laughs> yep. how has it come out in practice? Because I don't think a lot of people know. So, but I wanted to start out, you know, introduce yourself and let's just hear your story. What's your background, your education, and yeah. what brought you into this field? Absolutely. So, look, I'm a I'm a social worker by background. So, I went to went to university straight from high school, and then started my social work career in the youth homelessness sector, and was really struck by. I think how profoundly, you know, adverse childhood experiences like, you know, abuse, neglect, violence in the home were were manifesting so so intensely as, you know, mental ill health and substance use and addiction and more experiences of violent victimization and criminal offending and all of these, you know, sorts of things that were, I suppose, in really stark contrast to, you know, my own upbringing and my own sort of experiences with the world. So worked in sort of, you know, different different roles in that setting for for several years before moving into the youth offender space briefly and then I moved into a high secure forensic psychiatric hospital as a social worker and you'll be forgiven for not knowing I think Mike what what forensic mental health is because once I actually entered the forensic mental health world it really struck me that I didn't know either actually and you know (laughs) what an incredibly hidden I think world it is and that intersection between you know mental illness and criminal behavior and and what happens to these people with a mental illness that do go on to commit um, sometimes quite violent crimes so that was a you know really big learning curve for me really interesting learning curve and it was in that setting that I did a master of forensic mental health which was really fascinating and really quite broad Mm -hmm. so did yeah some different roles in that setting you know did one project looking at sort of the violence, abuse and neglect of of perpetrators, but I suppose looking at them through a, a victim lens and looking at what services were available uh, to them, which I can assure you is not too popular to discuss perpetrators as, as victims outside of, outside of forensic mental health. People tend not to take too kindly to that. I then moved into sort of a more general mental health space um, outside of the inpatient unit. And now I'm in mental health policy. So now I'm working on sort of the space where, you know, police officers are supported by mental health clinicians to respond to mental health events. That's that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) Wow, that's great. So I think most, most people, when they think about mental health, they think about counseling or they think about, you know, psychiatrist, psychotherapist. I literally just had a conversation with licensed psychotherapist, my friend Sal Scatino on a yes, prior yep. podcast. So this will be the dovetail leading into it because that space is kind of the, the application, help, helping the struggler with mental health and to help them grow out of it or grow through it. And yep. your side is more moving into that legal category in the legal realm as well in the, in the two wedge. And I think like the popular culture, we don't really see that unless we see it on TV or maybe a big, big lawsuit where somebody claims, does the insanity claim. Usually that's where it pops up. So it's great, you know, to have you to discuss some of this. Yeah. What are you currently working on today? You had mentioned a couple policies. Yeah. So in the um, mental health policy space, but really quite focused at the moment on, um, on a program that that provides mental health specialist support to the police, so to law enforcement when they're, you know, attending to a mental health event. And I suppose there's, you know, there's several sort of objectives of that, you know, one of which being, you know, moving away from, I suppose, coercive responses to people who might be in, you know, mental health distress. Police have such a big variety of jobs in the community and have to wear so many hats 
in so many regards. And I think, you know, kind of quite timely around that whole Black Lives Matter sort of movement as well, where the police were really, you know, vilified for their responses and um, looking at supporting them in a more specialist way, I suppose, to, you know, approach people a little a little differently um, with a bit of specialty. And if people do need to go to hospital or do need some sort of mental health intervention, that it's, that it's done less coercively and more collaboratively as well. And it sort of aims to reduce, you know, resource pressures on police and on mental health services and emergency departments. So far, it's been quite effective. So keep seeing how it tracks. Yeah. So we're talking about like practical helps for, for you know, as you mentioned, police officers, things like that. Oh, historically, have you noticed and maybe even in duration, looking back, even before that, or within the time sphere of your current job, have you seen a gap there? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think I think that was sort of most noticeable for me early on in my career working in youth homelessness. You know, you've got very traumatised, dysregulated young people, I suppose, in a lot of incidents and having a lot of contact with, with the local police. And those police doing their absolute best with what they have but you know each each party having a lot of stigma against the other I suppose you know the police you know I suppose seeing homeless young people in one basket and and those young people seeing the police you know in another basket and I think if that program had been available back then there might have been a little less I suppose criminalizing of sometimes what were actually mental health symptoms you know, that were manifesting as mm-hmm. criminal behaviours or aggression or, or violence. And so that's, I suppose, another objective is that, you know, we move away from criminalising mental illness. Interestingly, you know, I think it was back sort of around the, the civil rights movement when there was this big move to deinstitutionalize, you know, the mentally ill and move them out of psychiatric settings where they had been effectively sitting for years and reintegrate people back into the community it was very well-founded and, and, you know, founded in, you know, a lot of sort of human and civil rights, you know, fundamentals. But I think an offshoot's been is now people are reinstitutionalised in custodial settings, in jails, or they're, you know, arrested or incarcerated because, you know, a lot of connection with their mental illness, arguably. Yeah, I'm just thinking, so I think, I believe it was 1970 when, when JFK had signed, you know, shortly before that, I think it was 1968, he signed it, but 1970, when they had the movement to push those people that were actually in the psych, in the psych wards back out in the community, I think they called, they called it community care. And part of the, part of the back end of that was the argument that there was a dehumanization going on of the patients. So, you know, we went through this big wave of uh, electroshock therapy and then a very high insulin injections to induce seizures, yeah. and a lot of those would have uh, those patients would end up with with fractures from that, yeah. like literally spinal fractures, bone fractures, and and it was just you know I think the inhumane aspect of helping people where it's like it got shifted, and then that was kind of the part of the catalyst. And you're mentioning this. There is a I was reading about this being a connection like approximately, it said like approximately 10% of those people that were released from the institutions ultimately ended up in jail. And then shortly after that, we saw the war on drugs. And then that was the hockey puck where yeah. everybody ended yep. up in jail. And that was, you know, the 80s, the whole war yeah. on drugs. Yeah, yeah. No, I think so you're that, so that, right. It's had this, you know, very well-intentioned arrangement. And I know you're so right. I think, you know, there was a lot of attention to how inhumane a lot of the treatment was and that sort of concept of moral management and let's get people back with their families and back to their communities but without the right resourcing on the other on the other end and it's manifest in yeah you're absolutely right a lot of different ways that's wild so actually you know it would probably be good as we if we actually define the term here before yes, we jump in there. Like forensic <laughs> no. mental health let's let's define yep. it so that we have this shared re- shared definition so everyone understands yep. what we're actually talking about so no, very, you run very with that one. That's point. on you. <laughs> no worries. Look, I think in a nutshell, forensic mental health is the intersection of mental health and criminal behaviour. So forensic mental health services or, or specialists are focused on assessing and treating people with mental health problems who have a history of or who might be at risk of criminal offending. So there's some sort of core, you know, risk assessment and risk management have emerged as some really central 
elements, but those need to be very carefully delineated from risk prediction. That's, you know, I think that's a common misconception that, you know, forensic mental health professionals are able to predict risk. You know, this person will murder again if we let them out. And that's certainly not what it's about. It's around looking more at probability and assessing the other domains of people's lives that might contribute to an increased violence risk and be able to target interventions, whether they're therapies or practical interventions or medications. So what kind of criteria does, you know, people in your field look for that would be like, hey, this is a, the probability of this person kind of relapsing with into a mental state or a, a violent state or a criminal behavior of some sort. What does that look like? And what are the criteria in which you guides that conversation? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's actually a there's a variety of what are called structured professional judgment tools that are sort of, you know, empirically validated so that have been researched and um, and validated to some extent. They're not without their faults, but one, for instance, is called the HCR20, um, and that is a very specific tool that forensic mental health clinicians will use to assess violence risk. So... The way that it works is there are a variety of domains that have been like, you know, empirically based. We know that there's certain risk factors that contribute to an increase in violence risk. And there's also room for that clinician to use some of their own clinical judgment and knowledge to sort of incorporate a bit of a picture. So, you know, some of the items on that particular tool, you know, things range from mental state sort of stability and symptoms you know, personality sort of disorders or traits that might lead people a bit more vulnerable to, you know, behave in certain ways, mm-hmm. you know, to things like employment and social supports. And so it's a really forensic mental health, you know, these days takes what's called a biopsychosocial model. So it no longer just looks at, you know, medication as the only factor that's able to reduce someone's violence risk or improve their mental state. Now you have this really multidisciplinary team, you know, you have a a forensic psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, you have occupational therapists, psychiatric nurses, art therapists, (laughs) diversional therapists, you know, the list goes on. And all of those professionals work together to look at, so the bio, you know, the biological sort of determinants and treatments, the psycho aspect being, you know, more of the psychological interventions, you know, cognitions and working with people to shift the way they think and perceive things and the social Mm -hmm. elements. So, you know, family work and enhancing people's, you know, ability to interact socially in safer ways. So you've got this sort of holistic model now. Okay. So once you have looked at a person and and gone through that process and said, okay, this person kind of meets this criteria, they're, they're in their criminal justice, I'm assuming within the criminal justice system, then at that point, do you try to find a counselor or social worker, mental health professional to help with that specific struggle or something yeah. that they've, or the crime you mirror? Mo- a, is that the, really, kind of the process? That's yeah, a really good question. Yeah. Look, that's, and look, you know, forensic mental health services operate anywhere from the community into courts, you know, assessing in the court space or community space into mm-hmm. high secure inpatient settings or less secure inpatient settings. But ideally what will happen following, you know, quite robust and multiple different assessments, you'll have mental mental health assessments as well as assessment of violence risk, as well as assessment of, you know, social functioning. And so all of those things are concurrently happening. Ideally, what happens then is that a, a, a treatment plan um, is formulated by that, you know, multidisciplinary team, ideally, and okay. hopefully with the inclusion of the individual and their family or carer. And in that treatment plan, there will be those domains that you're talking about. So, the you know, the areas that might have been identified as, you know, say, for instance, it was substance use, like the offender has a, you know, a substance use disorder and we know that that is directly impacting on their offending behaviour, you'll then target a whole range of strategies or interventions. It might not be one person, but for instance, you might have the psychologist employ a particular therapy to try to target what, you know, it might be their emotional sort of 
regulation or how they handle emotions so they don't feel like they need to turn to substances. Or you might mm -hmm. have another, another domain might be that that person, you know, wasn't employed and that that was really seen as contributing to their offending behaviour. So you might have the occupational therapist really target some strategies to, to try to really support and enhance that area. So, yeah, you're right. You do try to tailor it and target professionals to that, those areas. Nice. And, you know, what you're describing to me, it sounds like, you know, there is a system in place in which, you know, everybody just thinks that, oh, they go to the psychiatrist and they talk to them and then they send them on their way. But what you're describing is an entire team that is assessing a person to actually help the person. And I think that this may be a topic that's generally overlooked in the conversation within the criminal justice system as a whole, because, you know, it's somebody's committed a crime, they go to jail, they pay the time, you know, they, that and that's it, just ship them off. But what you're describing is, okay, yes, this person has, you know, committed a crime, and yet we are still intervening to help this person. So I think this leans more towards the aspect of reform, which which is what the system is supposed to be, which we yep. don't really hear about a lot at all. You know, most of the time it's just you know, people get incarcerated, yeah. they have felonies, they try to get out, they try to get a job and they can't because they got this felony hanging over their head. And then what do they do for work? And, you know, and on the story goes. Yeah. But I think you're, what you're highlighting is important, actually pretty important for people to hear because I don't think it's brought up very often. Yeah. So it's a really neat field you get to work in. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a very cool space. And look, you're so right. I think that but look, I do have to say there's different resources, right? If you have a person with a mental illness in custody, you know, incarcerated, it doesn't automatically mean that their offence was related to their mental illness. They may be completely unrelated and that person may mm -hmm. not receive forensic mental health specialist, you know, a team. You know, custodial settings have, well, at least, at least where I am, have very different resourcing to, you know, much less resourcing comparative to a forensic mental health specialist, you know, inpatient setting, for instance, which is where people who are found sort of, you know, not criminally, you know, guilty but not criminally responsible may eventually end up. But I think you're, you know, you're so right. I think there's such a, a common misconception that, you know, the mentally disordered offender who's found not guilty by reason of insanity or, you know, the other variations of, of the language there, you know, either getting off on a charge because they were unwell or they, you know, are locked up and not seen again. When I think, you know, in reality, prisoner health of any kind is actually public health. Prisoners or, you know, inpatients are going to return to their communities and, and there's a lot of evidence that forensic mental health trajectories and interventions actually reduce reoffending quite substantially compared to just putting people in custody. You know, a, a lot of people in custody will go on to reoffend or recidivate. So, forensic mental health, while it's quite resource intensive, when you're on the proper sort of trajectory, the outcomes are much less repeated offending. And I think that's probably the the real take home of it. In your field, do you end up working with the same individuals from time to time, or you just work on a piece and then they, you don't see that again? I think, I think it depends on your setting. So if, if you're based in a, you know, for instance, if you're based in sort of the high secure forensic psychiatric inpatient setting, you will have individuals in that hospital for many years sort of working their way through different units and different rehabilitative processes and having so many assessments and reassessments. So people in those settings will often sit with and work with the same individuals we're talking for, you know, several years and years there. If you're looking at more community-based or, you know, criminal justice system interactions, arguably you're seeing a lot of sort of repeat presentations in those sorts of settings. You know, as we're talking, I'm just thinking through kind of like the definition of uh, insanity and mental health. And just the other day I was reading in the DSM and it's fairly nebulous <laughs> on its description yeah. Yeah. Um, itself. And, you know, this is the, the manual for, you know, for counselors and diagnosing, diagnosing things. But historically, rallying my mind is that the fact that historically symptoms that we wouldn't say are mental illness, like yeah. Down syndrome, something like that, yep. or yeah. autism, you know, and they were just incarcerating people like that. And also 
older age where they would say, okay, this person's older and they're exhibiting symptoms that are textbook at that time, which said like insane symptoms. So they were putting them in and there was this yeah. big uptick with the elderly that went into the institutions, you know, primarily because I don't think families didn't want to deal with them or didn't have the time or the money or, or patients, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever this, it may have been multifaceted. But then, you know, I think there's like, those are like separate, you know, separate categories. You know, I see them in different buckets in my mind. I'm wondering about, and this is probably the one that everyone's question, like what we talk about, like the plea of insanity uh-huh. for mental, for, for criminal cases. Maybe if we, you want to, if we want to shift gears, we can start tiptoeing through that one and ping pong yeah, some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. no, it's pretty, pretty core to, it's probably that higher profile space as well when people think of a mentally disordered offender, I think it's that sort of insanity plea or insanity defense space that really comes to mind. No, for sure. Where do you yeah. want to start? <laughs> big, big areas. We picked, we picked some big areas, Mike. Most people think uh, pleading insanity, that's just a, that's a great option, you know, or that's, that, that's very convenient for somebody who's done something very malicious, you know, let's say somebody uh, had maliciously murdered somebody and then all of a sudden they break down, and they plead, plead insanity. Or for instance, I saw in, in the Buzzfeed the other day, uh, that guy, Ron Jeremy, you know, all these rape allegations and whatever he had. And this guy like broke down and, and I think he's like pleading insanity is what the article said. Yeah. So what do you do in those scenarios? What do you think about, this whole, this big uh, can of worms. <laughs> yeah, no, look, like the insanity defense sort of generally. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should start there. Like what constitutes that? That'd be sure. a good starting place. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, if it's, might even just quickly run through sort of the history of it to give people some context as to how it sort of come oh, to be yeah. in, you know, in that. the States and in the UK and in Australia, sort of jurisprudence sort of particularly stemmed from, you know, there's been a, pretty substantial history of case law and developments in understandings of mental health, like, you know, like what you were sort of just referencing, that's really contributed to where the insanity defence or the defence of mental impairment and cognitive impairment, as it's now referred to where I am. But I suppose the most referred to point, if you like, was the case of McNaughton. Now, this was way back in 1843, when this 30-year-old Daniel McNaughton had um, beliefs that an English Conservative Party named the Tories were conspiring against him and following him um, and effectively persecuting him. Now, for McNaughton, this really culminated in in this sort of attempted assassination of the then British Prime Minister, Robert Pell. But he accidentally shot his secretary, Edmund Drummond, who died some weeks following that. Now, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity, <laughs> given, his, given his, I mean, big mistake to make there. Yeah. So he's gone on to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, given he had, you know, an unsound mind at the time of the offence. So hold on to that. That's now, core. was this one of the first cases that, that you've traced back that yes, ended up in a yeah. court it's a pretty predominant okay. um, in sort of the forensic mental health space. It's one of the sort of paramount cases, I think, where the principles that a lot of jurisdictions, you know, America, UK, Australia and others have really held on to the rules that came out of this case. That's why it's you might hear it okay. referenced often. Gotcha. Were there, do you know if there was some before this case that think, occurred or me? Oh, look, I think, do you know? I don't want to derail the, the the concept were, but... of, yeah, no, look, I think the concept of, you know, criminal responsibility and people with a mental illness traces back, you know, so mm-hmm. incredibly far back, you know, we're talking From the dawn of time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In various yeah. manifestations, um, you know, you had English kings in the 13th century pardoning, you know, quote unquote, the madmen, mm-hmm. you know, and you had... Yeah, you know, I think it's very interconnected with the way that societies have viewed or conceptualised mental illness at that time, right? And then that impacts then the legal definitions and how people are treated there and societal pressures around, you know, what are the pressures and the political pressures of the day? Are we letting people off? Are we going too hard on them? So I think it's a, you know, it certainly traces back to pre-McNaughton 
but these rules that came out of his case. So, look, he was actually eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity, and you can cue the public outcry there, as there still often is, right, when people are found not guilty by reason of insanity. And what happened following this huge sort of public outroar was that it was debated in Parliament and the House of Lords requested common law judges answer certain legal questions about insanity. And the judges' answers to these questions then formed what are now known as the McNaughton Rules and which now underpin the defence of, you know, the insanity defence or the defence of mental impairment or whatever you want to call it. And some of those rules were... A, the presumption of of sanity, so that, you know, everyone is presumed sane until proven otherwise. And the onus of proving that is on the defence. So if you you commit a crime and, and end up in court and say, I was mentally unwell at the time of that, that is on you and your mm-hmm. defence to establish. It must also be proved, I mean, this is where it gets, you know, arguably quite tricky and you need expert witnesses, and which are often forensic psychiatrists, to establish successfully the defence of insanity. It must be proved that at the time of the crime, the person operated under, you know, what was called a defect of reason due to a disease of the mind, aka a mental illness or cognitive impairment, to the point that mm-hmm. they did not know the nature and quality of that act was wrong. And this is where I think we can get confused, is thinking just because someone has a mental illness and commits a crime, those two things might be completely unrelated. And it's really about establishing, right, at that point in time where you committed that act or that crime, it was directly correlated with the mental illness or impairment. Yeah. When I think about when we talk about mental illness, I'm thinking about the, you know, you sit down like a, a psychiatrist, like psychotherapist would sit down and they would run someone through, like they would talk to them and they would un- understand what their thoughts are, what their feelings are, what their emotions are. And then they would line that up against like, okay, here's the criteria within DSM, you know, six months of this emotion, six months of, of this yeah. thought, you know, and then they would look at the intensity, the duration, and then they would say, okay, we have now categorized you as bipolar right? Uh High, high, low, lows. Or they say, you know, we've categorized as schizophrenic where you're hearing voices and you're seeing things. Uh Um, Now, a lot of those, those diagnoses are done just based upon talk therapy, not necessarily like there's not a blood, you know, it's not a blood draw. It's not there. Even, even in brain scans, they can see elements that highlight in different hemispheres, but it's uh, usually through talk. So when you say that the defense has to make a case, like, they really need to make a serious case to win that, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. These these defences are not easy to establish. I think that's what people think. Oh, you can plea insanity and, you know, get a psychiatrist in to say, yes, this person has schizophrenia, for example's sake, and, and therefore you have a successful case. You, you're so right. I mean, it's usually, you know, certainly the, the defence counsel and then an array of expert witnesses or forensic psychiatrists or forensic psychologists that, you know, would have to assess, you know, effectively every inch of this individual's life in order to come to a conclusion that they can professionally and reputationally and legally, you know, confidently say, yes, I genuinely believe that at the time of this offence, the illness or impairment was directly impacting their judgment. I'm just thinking, like, I'm sure there's a whole plethora of arguments that go against this into defending this. But in the moment of any act that we know is wrong, like, there is an element of us that still recognizes, okay, this is wrong. Even like habitual offenders or like uh-huh. some of the cases that we've seen, like crazy murder cases, they try to hide that, you know, from people. There's an aspect of hiding it. And I wonder if that layer of that's not necessarily just simply of not wanting it caught but a recognition of that what I've done is wrong. So uh, have you been close to any cases like this or? There's certainly, look, no, you're right. And can you imagine how difficult it would be to really ascertain if someone didn't have that that slight, no, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, you know, then there's a whole sort of. Can't peer inside their brains, right? You know? Right. No, no. And I think that's, you know, going back to what you said, before around the DSM, I think there is criticism um, of how people are diagnosed 
you know, with mental illnesses because you can sometimes have separate psychiatrists end up turning out with really different diagnosis or different options yeah. for a diagnosis too. So you're right, it does speak to our subjective perception of Absolutely. I, I was literally just talking to prior podcast with Sal, he was, you know, he was talking about a moment in his life where he had gotten diagnosis. He had gotten the label put on and we were talking about getting past the, the label and the, the label is reductionistic. It's an emotion yep. and it's a label, right? It, well, within a very short span of time, he was going through counseling and the label was dropped. The emotions are gone. The labels dropped. Yeah. And, but it's just, it's interesting. Just like you're saying, like you can have multiple counselors, each give you different perspectives on what they think is going on because they're, you know, I think they're doing the best to try to solicit and figure out you know, what's going yeah. on. I mean, the person only knows what's going on in their mind ultimately, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we looked at a little history. You want to jump into some of the criteria? For like that needs to be established? Yeah. Like for a defence. So like yeah, I said, the yeah, so like I said, it's, you know, initially going into a trial, you would be presume, presumed, presumed sane. And so, but, you know, for some individuals who, so for some people who have a mental illness and do go on to say commit a, you know, a violent crime and just for example, say end up with a murder charge, you know, in some instances, there's already quite an established history of mental health service contact. And so, you know, the defence might quite early on be able to get a hold of, you know, a lot of that information and it might be the sort of insanity defence, if you like, might quite early be, be sort of raised and put on the table in that courtroom. I know there are, you know, a lot of the people that I've worked with had unfortunately quite extensive mental health service contacts and did fall through various gaps in the lead up to their offence. Not everyone, some people have had none. So it would be on, on that defence to sort of raise that and, and just stressing the importance of that expert witness and the role of sort of the forensic psychiatrist in, in establishing that. So it needs to be established that they have, you know, what was termed a disease of the mind or a, a mental illness or what's now been included quite explicitly is a cognitive impairment. That at the time of the offence, it was, there was sort of a, a real direct correlation and that they did not know at that time that what they were doing was wrong or that the nature of the act was wrong, which as you, as you said, that might be a really fleeting moment. Yeah. So when we talk about cognitive impairment, what, what type of symptoms are we generally dealing with? Is it uh, just delusional disassociation or, and I ask this because there are a lot of people in the world that mm -hmm. are walking around that are, that had diagnosed like three, four deep. And those people are going about their everyday life. They may yep. be strugglers and crying every night and, and weeping and, and having panic attacks on their own, but they're not out doing malicious things. And I, th and I see a vast difference there but between the two, but if they were, that seems like that could be the potential person that, oh, let's give them a defense case. Do you know what type of like diagnosis some of these people have gotten through, through the years? The people that, are, that, have six, that successfully sort of um, yeah, employ the, the defense mental illness, look, it's, it's, mm -hmm. um, it's pretty vast and pretty interesting. You know, I think, I think you'll always come across cases and go like, wow. So you, you know, there's schizophrenia and psychotic disorders, I think are, are reasonably common. And yeah, you know, those mm -hmm. like you said, it marks by, you know, hallucinations or delusions or, you know, things like that. I think personality disorders are also quite common in forensic set settings generally. So particularly your cluster B personality disorders, which is, an antisocial personality disorder and a borderline personality disorder. You'll see probably a fair degree of substance use disorders as well. And I think where you're right, there are plenty of people walking around in the community with all of these diagnoses and, and labels. And, and only it's only a very, very small proportion that actually go on to commit a particularly violent crime such as murder, right? Yeah, um, but yeah. I think... Yeah, totally. But I think you see, we see movies and we see the news and I think we automatically, you know, all the stigma we carry around about mental illness and criminals makes us think that, you know, 
the potential for that is probably much higher than it actually is. But where those individuals' risk of violence particularly increases, and there's a lot of um, a lot of research to sort of substantiate this, is when you have what's called comorbid, you know, or co-occurring disorders or illnesses, where you might have, I'm just using these as examples, but where you might have a mm-hmm. psychotic disorder that actually co-occurs with an antisocial personality disorder. So you might have your base personality, which is, you know, antisocial type, you know, that uses, for instance, might be marked by a personality that uses violence as a means to an end, feels like violence or aggression is quite justified in getting what they want, you know, huge degree of people in custody with with that personality Mm -hmm. type. Yeah, Machiavelli. Um, Yeah, (laughs) right. And then you've got that right there. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, and then you might have a psychotic disorder overlaid on that, which then brings about different impairments, if you like, cognitively, you know, the way you're thinking about things, you might be hearing things or perceiving the way that people are behaving, is persecuting you. And then you might have that overlaid with a substance use disorder or an addiction, you know, like whether it's crystal meth or heroin or, you know, cannabis, for instance, and, and that, those substances impacts on our brain. So yeah. when you look at that I'm co-occurring nature. You, mm. Yeah, the co-occurring or the, the dual diagnosis, it generally uh-huh. comes uh-huh. with drug use and then a mental disorder. And if you look at the effects, and this is not brought up often, most people think, okay, it's only the hard, the hardest of hard drugs. It's crystal meth. It's heroin. It's you know, crack cocaine, which, you know, that's a 1980s drug, right? You know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, most, you know, opioid, the opioid epidemic. Like, what they don't realize is the heavy drug use actually parallels. I mean, you can see this in documents. This is well documented that you know things like schizophrenia or anxiety, depression, like uh-huh. all these areas are increased, have a higher probability, and exasperate you know, emotions in people. I was reading a recent article actually on probably not, not very popular, but it's, it was on weed of, yep. and it was done on a poll of 15,000 people. And they were, their results said, I mean, and you know, from scientific polls, that's a massive poll, 15,000 people. Then they did another one. I think it was like 600, 800 people. And they concluded was that weed was actually the highest contributor to schizophrenia in people is what they were discovering. And this is just the data, you know, people can do with it what they want, you know, laugh at it, think it's nothing because right now, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but it's legal across myriad states at this point, or we can use it for medical, but people don't realize there's, there's also side effects for that. So, yeah, no, you're so right. I, I do recall a number of sort of offenses that occurred, you know, quite proximately, you know, quite, you know, near to people having consumed, um, substances such as cannabis or, or marijuana and, and, you know, it may have been people that were already experiencing psychosis that, and it's yeah. really exacerbated that, um, yeah. you know, or, or another substance so, so lesser discussed and certainly in Australia, you know, alcohol, so utterly socially acceptable. Oh, yeah, same here. everywhere, <laughs> but incredibly problematic on, you know, in its interaction with people's behaviours and mental state and aggression and, you know. Absolutely. That's some really good information, you know, ping pong. Now let's, now I know you had sent me this and we were thinking, well, we don't know what what our timeline was. I didn't, I think I want to get into the mental impairment, like partial and substantial defense. We had mentioned that. Like what the distinction is. That's an interesting one because there's, that would be, so you might have substantial impairment as a partial defence to murder. And so while something like the insanity defence is a, you've got what are called, you know, complete defences, so defences that will, you know, may acquit you or may send you down a forensic mental health road and have no criminal responsibility. But then you have these partial defences, right, like substantial impairment that, Acknowledge that you may not have wholly been affected, but that you were, you know, you were substantially impaired by sort of any range of different different items. And what that might do is then, because it's a partial defence, is might downgrade, for instance, a murder charge to manslaughter as a lesser charge. And, you know, there's a whole range of sort of, you know, different case examples where 
that partial defence has been used and where it's been successful or not, do you know? And, yeah. and what really kicks in there can be things like substance use and the effects of someone's mm -hmm. substance use on their mental state. Did it sort of substantially impair them? So could know, that, that could be a partial defence is what you're saying? It could, like, it could be, yeah. Potentially. Yeah, yeah potentially. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's looking at sort of, I suppose, factors that, you know, what's impacted your impairment at that point, but recognising yeah. it wasn't impacted enough that we will entirely remove your criminal responsibility from you. Do most people that receive partial impairment, are they going in with the insanity plea? And then it gets reduced I don't down. Know the answer to that—that's a really good question, and I, and I and I don't okay. know if if it's like you know if what I hear what you're saying is like a it's like a downgraded version where people might think, yeah, oh, we're going like, to successfully reach that. Should we try <laughs> exactly. this partial defence? I actually don't know the answer to that, but would have to okay. sort of go and you know have a look. And yeah. it's not all these. Sorry, Mike. No, go ahead. Good. I was going to say, then you've got all these other sort of really fascinating sort of defences, you know, one around automatism, which is uh, the defence that sort of brings up, you know, it's a legal defence that brings up was somebody's will um, out of line with their bodily actions. And that's where you're seeing things like people, you know, having epileptic seizures and causing harm to people or people sleepwalking. And I posted something the other day, a guy sleepwalking murders his wife and says, I have no recollection of that. And he was acquitted under the under that defence because really? they were able to establish that yeah that your you know that your bodily actions were not aligned at that time to your will you know hyperglycemia people acting out of their usual state you know in the effects hmm. of hyperglycemia it's wild there's so, like there's so many <laughs> different pockets of fast. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, you can go to sleep and like randomly jerk in your sleep unintentionally. I mean, it's quite a contrast, you know, the comparison is quite a yeah, contrast yeah, yeah. between sure. walking around and just killing people. You know, it sounds like <laughs> a Michael Myers scene or something. Um, it just seems seems wild to think about it like that. I mean, there's certainly cases where where people ingest drugs and then their bodily functions are, you know, wetting yeah. their pants or, or you can't walk, you know, can't talk. Your speech is slurred. Gosh, I just sounded like I just described someone that got really hammered. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, definitely drugs create impairment of the body. You know, you're making me think about like the idea of the dichotomy between the body and the mind. Like, a lot of philosophers, like Descartes, was one of proposed this, and he separated the body and the mind, and he tried to make them like this dualistic, like the mind is different right. than the body. I wouldn't adhere to his assertions and plenty of people have dismissed the guy on this. But in a sense, when you're describing that, it almost sounds very reminiscent to like a dualistic understanding of the body and the mind uh -huh. and separating the two out. Like, oh, he, the body just did it. The mind had no cognitive ability to understand yeah. or rationalize what was going on in the moment. And that's you know, reminiscent of some philosophers, I think, think there's several that picked up on his themes. I mean, that's what it sounded like you were describing. Yeah. That no, sound I, think, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really, really interesting comparison. And I think that's effectively at the core. But, you know, that it brings yeah. up those notions of like, God, how do we, you know, how do we, what a hard defense to establish, how you actually have to ascertain someone's level of consciousness mm -hmm. and their volition yeah. or their will. I mean, that's well, complicated. I, it is. And this area, you know, I don't want to offshoot us really far down here. No, please. There is, you know, within our culture, I don't know if it's as prevalent in where you are, but we have the aspect of I'm born, <laughs> this might really send us in a different direction, but I'm, I'm no, born a man, but in, my mind, but, but in my mind, I'm a female. And that is the complete understanding of dualism, body-mind dualism, right. so that my psychology trumps my physiology. And that type of thinking is what exactly what we're talking about here. So then the, the lawyers are there making the case against that. But that's just how it's happening in practicality. But it's also mm -hmm. happening behind the scenes, it sounds like, in court cases sometimes, oh, which that, is... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And probably probably lesser, lesser sort of heard of. But, you know, that's, that's a really interesting example. And really if you look at like the scope of sort of evolution around all of this and the intersection right between philosophy and religion and how that's impacted our understanding of mental illness, which has then impacted how the law 
conceptualizes and handles criminal responsibility. Yeah. I mean, you actually have perfect for your intersecting ideas, but you, <laughs> you know, you have all of these domains like the theology, like we were talking about and how they're influencing each other. So, I mean, I can jump in on that a little bit. Please, um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, no problem. That's, so that's my background. So let me, I actually had a couple, couple quotes that I wanted to read because sometimes when we think about, you know, mental illness in the church, like there's, it's a deep history. I probably don't have time to go even scratch the surface. But I wanted to read a couple lines, and here's the first one. It says, I've had enough, take my life. That's the line. It says, cursed is the day I was born. Why did I, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow to the end of my days and shame? Or this one, I'm worn out in my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, and I fail because all my foes. So I could take each of those and line those up in today's modern understanding of psychology. And I would say the first one had suicidal ideology, mm-hmm. right? The, the second one was crushed with shame and had suicidal thoughts. And the third potentially was struggling with manic depression. Totally. Now, yep. all, all three of those quotes were from the Bible, some of the greatest prophets in the Bible. Wow. <laughs> But it's kind of wild because it shows like the humanity, like the rawness and humanity of people was depicted in there. And then you see like Jesus in, in the New Testament, he steps on the scene and he, and he has compassion on the, men, the mentally ill. What we would categorize as mentally ill, he has compassion on them. He goes to the cast outs, the sick, the lowly, uh-huh. what people are called sinners, and he reaches out. So for, as far as the theological standpoint, that actually sets the precedence for the entire church on how to handle mental illness. And it should be compassionate and reaching out. From what I can trace down, it appears that it was actually the Catholic church that set up the first mental hospital early in 321. And then after that, you know, before that, it was bishops and monks that were taking care of them, then, you know, taking them under wing. And then it moved from that into the monasteries. And then we come into the Middle Ages and oh my gosh, that was crazy. (laughs) That's, like, when we, like, that's when we get lost oh, for a while. That's, it took such a downturn. It was horrific conditions. They were being killed. There was like, it wasn't helps. It was, yeah. it was just, it was gross. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. But there were obviously pockets within there. If we fast forward, there were big lights that people don't even realize. Like mid-1600s, a guy named Richard Baxter, he wrote this massive book and it outlined what we would call mental illness today and how to help people with mental illness. So there was definitely the bright lights of the church came out in history. Like, of course, you know, the big name is Dorothea Dix. Everybody, Uh a lot of people are familiar with within the mental institution um, helping that. She was a Christian woman, nurse, dedicated to it, to helping what she saw the suffering. So I think that the wedding between like theology, psychology, and now when well, we're talking about law, there's an intertwining there, right? So Absolutely. it's kind of like people often want to relegate one idea or one thought into a, into a section, but there's so much overlap between these disciplines. And I find that funny because, you know, you can take somebody and put them in a field, field of psychology, and guess what? Their worldview and their philosophy is going to impact the way they behave in that discipline. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a little tiptoeing through some history. but <laughs> No, look, I really enjoyed that. And I actually, I wasn't aware of the sort of really, early, you know, the, the earliest sort of reference that you gave to, you know, to the church being responsible for a lot of that early mental health care. I mean, really fascinating. It sounds like in some regards, as we often do in different areas of history, sort of come somewhat full circle through things. We had this really compassionate, it sounds like, you know, approach initially, you know, which is certainly where we're aimed at these days. And, and, and a lot of what I was hearing from you is, you know, how we, you know, treat the most most vulnerable in our society, which are yeah. often people with a mental illness and often people mm-hmm. sitting in custody and people who are homeless. There's a lot about where that society's at at any given time. I can only speak for what I know from the Western church here on this one, but it seems like most of them nowadays, they would call it soul care, you know, or, you know, Christian counseling or soul care, and they would come alongside 
and try to help one another out. And I think at the foundation level, we're all, in a sense, counselors. So we, uh-huh. when we have problems, who's the first person we turn to? First person yeah. you and I would turn to probably are our friends, our boyfriends, girlfriends, spouse, friends, family, well before we go on to someone else. So I, I think on that foundational sense, like that, you know, is is psychology in practice, <laughs> untrained yeah. psychology in practice, right? Oh, so, look, uh, you're so right. Those relationships closest to us, and there is a, plenty of evidence on this, you know, the impacts on relationships, like safe and secure relationships, the impacts they have on children's development, on adults and mm-hmm. our ability to, you know, regulate our emotions or have improved sort of, you know, social, emotional, mental well-being. I think I th- I'm hearing from you that sort of, you know, that from a sort of, you know, religion and, and church perspective, I think it's there's a lot of still crossover with how relationships are valued. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think there's major, major overlaps in there within that area. We so this is hours, really, I think, Mike. <laughs> I think I think so. We could we could like keep on going into another uh, yeah. a whole nother sphere of topics. There's no doubt. We've covered some pretty oh. dense areas in the span of an we hour. have That's we have amazing. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that I'm looking at the clock. clock I'm like, yeah, we're probably want to want to wind down. You know what? We might have to do a part two. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm ready when you yeah. are. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let me close us out here. And thanks, Alex, so much for joining. Thank you for you know, having it's, me. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's been great, you know, just to talk about forensic mental health. I'm sure that the people that have listened or have become well, become way more informed. I know I have a lot of, a lot of the stuff you shared. And you have, a, you have an Instagram page that you're posting really cool stuff to. So what's the name of it for people in case they want to follow you? So the page is at not criminally responsible and it's just, you know, just started as a bit of a hobby page for me to, you know, dump some forensic mental health content for people who may be interested. But no, look, really appreciate you as well setting this setting this time up. Likewise, yeah. learn a lot off you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for coming on and let me go ahead and sign us out. My name is Mike Parks at Intersecting Ideas. Talk to you guys later.